This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. These companies are investing, but right now we're putting a framework around those investments so that it's not on a voluntary basis whether or not they want to invest in in Canadian stories, in in Francophone stories, in Indigenous stories. In in terms of exactly how this will happen, we we will be asking the CRTC to hold hearings and and to determine the the, the exact mechanisms by which you were uh, were asking about funds uh, in your question. So we will be asking the CRTC to determine the the exact ways this, this this will take place. Last week, Canadian Heritage Minister Stephen Guibault introduced Bill C-10, legislation that would significantly reform Canada's Broadcasting Act, a foundational part of what he has called a get-money-from-web-giants legislative strategy. The bill grants new powers to Canada's telecom and broadcast regulator, the CRTC, to regulate online streaming services such as Netflix and Spotify. That opens the door to those services facing mandated payments to support the creation of Canadian content, discoverability requirements to make it easier to find that content, and rules that would require them to provide confidential data to the regulator. If they fail to comply, the bill creates the prospect of new penalties. Bram Abramson is one of Canada's leading communications law lawyers and managing director of a new digital risk and rights strategy firm called 32M. Bram acted as an outside consultant on telecom regulation for the recent Broadcasting and Telecommunications Legislative Review Panel, often called the Yale Report, but he joins the podcast to talk about broadcast regulation, in particular, what Bill C-10 could mean for the regulation of online streaming services. Bram, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Happy to. It's great to have you on in what has been a big week in Canada from a broadcast and internet policy perspective with the introduction of Bill C-10, which I guess, depending on your perspective, either was much needed or raises some real risks of potential harm. Uh, We don't necessarily have to get into what side you fall on with respect to that question, but I do think it's really worthwhile to unpack some of the, the key elements in the bill, as well as understand the context for how all of this has come to be. And so before we get into some of the specifics in Bill C-10, why don't we set a bit that context of how we've regulated or I suppose not regulated internet streaming services in Canada, going back all the way, I think, to the 1990s when the CRTC began looking at this. Can you walk us through, in a sense, the last couple of decades in, in a couple of minutes, so to speak? Sure. And you know what, I'll, I'll even add, I'll throw in a prequel because it's helpful to understanding, which is the the uh, the pre-internet years, if you like, um, with a couple of quick hits. Uh, one is, you know, people who talk about broadcasting uh, regulation in Canada, and this is, of course, an act to amend the, the Broadcasting Act, always go back to a famous quote from 1929, um, which is really where the broadcasting policy in Canada began uh, with the, uh, the Aired Commission, which is a well-known at the time, and even today for those who study it, uh, panel, I suppose, on providing recommendations on on whether or not to regulate the radio waves. And the slogan they kind of ended up with, uh, I believe, uh, was the state or the United States. And their point really was, look, um, there's lots of content coming over the border. We 
want to develop a, a domestic conversation about issues uh, of the day at the time. Of course, uh, you know, we weren't into TV production and, and, and all that sort of thing. And so the state or the United States was really the rallying cry which led um, early broadcast regulation in Canada and broadcast policy. So carry that forward. Uh, 1968, New Broadcasting Act, which um, for the first time is going to try and sweep in a world in which cable systems are, are, a, part of, are a part of things. And the, the approach taken is to say, we have a single broadcasting system made up both of the airwaves and what happens on cable. And we're gonna create this body, the Canadian Radio and Television Commission, telecommunications was added later, um, to regulate that single system under a single policy. Fast forward again to 1986, the 1968 Act is getting old and they say, look, by now we have things like pay television, satellite distribution, interactive video services. We have some sort of information superhighway coming down the pipe. We'd like a technology neutral broadcasting act that doesn't confine broadcasting to any one technology and doesn't hinder the development of broadcasting technologies for non-broadcast purposes uh, is the message of the day. And so, uh, take a few years, study, 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 1991, we have today's Broadcasting Act. What we have in today's Broadcasting Act is sort of, you know, a, a definition for broadcasting, which is often pretty far apart by what, pretty, pretty far apart with, from what most people think of as broadcasting. So, you know, say to someone on the street, what's broadcasting? It's, you know, over the air, one-to-many broadcasting. Maybe say to an engineer, what's broadcasting? And again, it's it's sort of one-to-all transmissions. Uh, but in the statute, it works a little bit differently. Um, the CRTC was set up by the 1991 Act as, as a, a body that now had authority over, generally, the audio and audiovisual content transmitted over telecommunications networks to the public for display or performance in private places or in, in non-public places. So you know, agree or don't agree with it, but that's the sort of thrust of the expansive definition of broadcasting, which was in the 1991 Act. And that really sets up uh, what began to happen as the information superhighway conversation gave way to, to really the internet. So throughout the 1990s, you know, you have the CRTC being asked to report to the government on the implications of that. Uh, again, <laughs> I feel funny saying it, but information superhighway, you remember Al Gore was uh, the great champion uh, of the day. Um, by 1998, you know, the internet and the World Wide Web, which is kind of stitching together a lot of the different internet applications, is going strong. And at this point, 1998, the CRTC says, look, the law says, the law that governs us says, either we license uh, those who are transmitting an audio or audiovisual content over the internet, or we exempt them from licensing. But either way, we know what the definition of broadcasting is, and there's a reasonable argument that what's happening on the internet fits that expansive definition. So we need to have a hearing about what we're going to do. Um, they hold a public hearing. They hold their very first online forum, which was run by the uh, the McLuhan Center at the U of T in the day. And out of that comes the CRTC's first new media exemption or this order. This is 1999. And so, you know, the the, the thinking behind the order is, is quite straightforward. Regulating audio and audiovisual content transmitted over the internet in Canada would not contribute materially to implementing the broadcasting policy. It's our job as the CRTC to implement, so we're not going to do it. That's, that's essentially the message. We're not going to do it, and we don't need to look at this for a little while. 
because we need to provide some certainty to the the nascent uh, uh, different activities and industries that are that are arising on the internet. So no sooner, of course, does the CRTC do this than a couple of startups, uh, Michael, who you uh, you've written about a fair bit, I Crave TV and Jump TV, uh, try plugging the television into the internet and selling it on the basis that the new exemption order means that the Copyright, Copyright Act lets them. So there's a bit of cleanup involved, but by and large, the new media exemption order kind of sails forward and sails forward right through the, uh, the 2000s through to another hearing a decade later in 2008. Despite a much more mature video of the internet industry in 2008, the CRTC says, look, we're still good. There's nothing for us to do here. The exemption order is renewed and even extended to include mobile TV that's not delivered over the internet. So you have another exemption order and that's 2009. But of course, in 2009, the exemption, the exemption order looks quite different than in 1999 because enough people have enough bandwidth that streaming video becomes a thing. And that really is what takes us to the past decade. That context is enormously helpful, really dating back for so long. And to, to see how some of the same policy considerations have, have played out literally over mm -hmm. decades. So over the last decade, there clearly has been both a growing use of, of the Internet for streaming purposes, a range of type of uh, media being used for the, that people are using the internet to access uh, and other people to, to make available. And of course, that has heightened the interest of certainly many players in the sector to say, CRTC, your approach doesn't make sense anymore. It's outdated. You need to step in with, uh, with a stronger regulatory approach. And we've had, over, especially over the last number of years, uh, some pretty significant events. The prior chair of the CRTC, Jean-Pierre Blay, took a look at this this through a hearing. We had the former heritage minister, Melanie Jolie, take a look at it. And then most recently, uh, the so-called Yale report, the BTLR. Uh, can you talk a bit about the, I guess, the last decade that then leads us now to Bill C-10? Yeah, I mean, I, and as you say, Michael, I think you've got it exactly right. You know, we, we had a few folks and a few institutions and really a lot going on. I mean, you know, certainly over the last decade, We've had reports almost every year at the CRTC and elsewhere on online video, over-the-top television, um, and all of the different, uh, first of all, you know, industry successes and and accomplishments that that has yielded. And, and then folks within the traditional television sector saying, look, um, we have to program Canadian content, especially independent Canadian content. We have to contribute to the making of that content. We've got all kinds of rules. We've got our hands tied behind our backs. Here come these big uh, uh, California-based and other players who, who seem to have no rules at all. Now, you know, I mean, most of those rules are about activities undertaken in the traditional system, not over the internet, but regardless. And then you've got... Um, independent producers saying, hey, we have a system in which we're funded uh, through regulated activities. As those activities erode, what happens to us? Um, you have uh, all kinds of activity at, at, uh, within the federal government itself, at the Ministry of Canadian Heritage. We had a Creative Canada strategy uh, produced by Melanie Jolie uh, through the process that you described. We have we had a digital charter, which sort of intersected with some of the issues related more to telecommunications than to uh, audiovisual and broadcasting, um, but, you know, was part of the mix. And then at the same time, we were striking sort of a, a lightning panel to do what, you know, I, I described earlier the process between 1986 and 1991. So the, the goal was to do that within a year and to produce a report on how to uh, uh, revise the Telecommunications and Broadcasting Acts in order to 
address all of these different issues that, that folks were talking about. And so, you know, you had a, an interesting situation in which you, both politically and, and legislatively, if you like, there was a lot going on and, and the two often intersected. One of the common uh, refrains or comments was, look, if you really wanted this, if the CRTC really wanted to do something here, or if you wanted the CRTC to do something here, they don't really need any any new legislative powers. They can do a lot of this under the existing acts. And so one of the interesting things about the BTLR report was how it handled that and to what extent the changes that it was making were related to things like the new digital environment versus sort of uh, changes meant to be about good governance versus changes which really nudged this or, or were intended to nudge the CRTC doing uh, uh, take well implementing I suppose policy prescriptions that um, that were on the table as opposed to saying look CRTC you have the power to do this or not to do this and so all of that is was in the mix uh, when the report was being consulted on and 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 I suppose gradually written and came out and the uh, current government saying, you know what, We're, we'd like to do something here uh, quite quickly. And that brings us to Bill C-10, which sure. was relatively quick. It was. Well, I mean, I think the minister talked about making it even quicker. And then, of course, COVID <laughs> came. So it delayed it only by a few months. Uh, in fairness, he talked about having something by June, and he's now managed to have this bill out uh, here early in November. Mm -hmm. uh, so why don't we talk a bit about the, the bill? Now, obviously, uh, I'm going to assume we're going to have uh, at least several months worth of study and some hearings uh, as people fully digest what it has to say and uh, some of its implications. And so uh, I'm not going to hold you to that kind of detailed analysis at this stage because it's going to take some time. Um, but I suppose first and foremost, of course, is the government taking the position that Internet streaming companies now are explicitly included within the Broadcasting Act? How does it go ahead and accomplish that within the bill? Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. Earlier we talked about the CRTC's new media exemption orders, and later these became known as digital media exemption orders. And of course, those wouldn't make sense if there was nothing to exempt. And so the CRTC's position was always that look, internet or audiovisual content transmitted over the internet falls into the kind of expansive definition that's in the act of broadcasting. We just don't want to regulate it. This the 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 Yale report and similarly the government agreed with that view. So they said, look, it, it's in the act. We don't need to, to, to do anything to cause streaming companies to fall within the Broadcasting Act. But what we are going to do is direct a little bit how the CRTC is to regulate them. And so what the bill does in some ways, and it's 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 interesting because it's it it doesn't necessarily appear that way at first blush, but is to take away some of the CRTC's discretion as to how it will regulate and approach these these companies. So, without C10, e either internet, you know, based uh, transmission of audio and audiovisual content falls within the Broadcasting Act or doesn't. Now, if it doesn't, you know, it's now explicit. But but the argument, I suppose, was that before it was open to the CRTC to say, look, these guys are are transmitting audiovisual content. Etc. It's within the Act, so as the CRTC, we're just going to apply something very similar to our existing regulatory scheme to them. It's not going to be the same, but it's going to be very similar. Now, it doesn't mean that the CRTC ever said it was going to take that approach, but legislatively, it was open to them. So the bill says that's no longer an option. Instead, we're going to create a whole other category called, and, and this is the language in the bill, an online undertaking. We're going to sort of delineate CRTC, what powers you have in order to implement the broadcasting policy in regulating them. 
and they're not going to be as broad as your other powers. So an online programming undertaking in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the act is an undertaking for the transmission or retransmission of programs, which are defined elsewhere as audio or audiovisual content. So the, the transmission or retransmission of programs over the internet for reception by the public by means of broadcasting receiving apparatus, which is uh, clunky language for technology, basically. And so that is wrapped inside the definition of broadcasting. So it's sort of a two-stepper. But regardless, um, it's uh, a specific definition that talks about online undertakings. And so once the bill passes, it's hard to imagine there will be much debate as to what the government has meant by online programming undertaking. Okay. No, fair enough. So it's pretty clear this is who they're targeting, but there are some exemptions. So they they are careful to say, certainly within the legislation, that there are at least some uh, entities that are exempted. And then there's, of course, the prospect that the CRTC might exempt even more. Yes. It's in the law. And, you know, when we get eventually to the CRTC, assuming this bill passes, uh, do they have the discretion to say that that others that are other streamers, let's say, that are otherwise captured by the law, are effectively exempted from some of these rules as well. Yes, and so first, by the way, let me clean up my language. I said online programming undertakings a few times and that mashes together two different things. Uh, the bill calls them online undertakings. Um, and in terms of who is an online undertaking, who is exempt in the bill, who might the CRTC further exempt, yes and yes. There are a few carve outs and then there's a few, and then there's a few that the CRTC will either have to clarify or to invent. So in the bill itself, First of all, most obviously, anything that's not audio or audiovisual is excluded. And then there's then there's a social media exemption, which is kind of interesting because it doesn't really define the bill, social media, and what's meant by that. But um, any anyone who is uploading to a social media service, another term that's not defined, or who is running an online undertaking whose broadcasting consists only of uh, uh, programs uploaded to a social media service. So you will no doubt think immediately of YouTube here um, as the most famous example, um, is excluded. So that's an exemption. That's, that's another exemption in the bill. As I say, I suspect the CRTC is going to have to get into defining it and, and, and into setting up what the parameters are, but there's a broad uh, uh, carve out there. And so we can imagine that beyond YouTube, it, it neatly uh, takes at least some services off the table. You can imagine, um, I don't know, starting up a WhatsApp group with, with hundreds or thousands of your closest friends and distributing videos or, or whatever it is, and someone at some point saying, hey, does this mean that we're under this uh, uh, beefed up Canadian Broadcasting Act? And at least uh, here, you're out. Um, the CRTC, separately from, from those exemptions, also has an obligation to avoid regulating um, where it doesn't contribute materially to implementing the broadcasting policy. So it has to take size and other relevant differences into account. It has to be fair and equitable between undertakings providing services of a similar nature. All this suggests something that most observers, I think, would, would expect the CRTC to do anyway, which is to establish clear thresholds below which it simply will not get involved. That's the approach that the CRTC has taken in other sort of Broadcasting Act activities. It has carve-outs for smaller uh, television services. It has carve-outs for smaller cable and IPTV distribution undertakings. And so that's another one I think we should expect. But the interesting thing in all this, and a bit of a change in the approach taken 
in this bill from the way that broadcasting law has worked in Canada in the past is that most of the CRTC's regulation has been required to go by class of undertaking. And it's almost like a good governance measure. It's, it's a way of saying, look, you can't sort of single out a particular company. You have to regulate by class. Here, there's much more latitude to regulate on a one-by-one on a -one approach. Um, it's something that really mirrors an approach that uh, uh, Minister Jolie and her team explored with their Creative Canada strategy, which we spoke about earlier. It's something that the CRTC advocated around the same time with its Harnessing Change report. And it's really about being able to define and tailor uh, the regulatory approach taken to particular large platforms, rather than requiring the CRDC to slot them into classes or, or larger categories. Now, there's, I suppose, pros and cons around that. Um, but and, and it's, it's sort of an interesting debate. But that's another piece of the exemption approach, which we really haven't uh, seen much of before. Okay, it's going to be certainly interesting to play out. Has, did the government provide any guidance on this latter form of, of exemption to sort of what they have in mind in terms of who gets captured by this regulation and, and who might be excluded? Or at this stage, is it basically uncertain and it's up to the CRTC to establish the parameters? I think that's right. It's I think it's really uh, one where if uh, I suppose we can simply ask them, but I suspect if we did, um, they'd say, look, that's up to the CRTC. They're the expert regulator. Uh, and that's why we have a, a staff and a, and a team uh, in Gatineau who are, are spending their time looking into these matters and thinking about how best to, to regulate. So, uh, or, or how best to implement, I suppose, the, the broadcasting policy and what regulations, if necessary, required in order to get us there. So, you know, I, I can only imagine that those who, who, uh, who guided the drafting of the bill had particular approaches in mind. And I similarly can only imagine that um, there will be all kinds of conversations be, between all kinds of folks. And so, you know, I can imagine that there's some sort of alignment that, that will take place. But on the whole, I think it's it's really, and and in, in a very honest way, left up to the CRTC. Um, in terms of guidance on how it was intended the CRTC use these broad powers, you know, I will say we don't have a ton of guidance on that either. The guidance that we do have really is the, the Yale report, which... Um, many of these, not, I believe, and I'd have to check, but I believe not so much the latter, but a lot of the uh, the elements of, of this, which um, really draw from the broadcasting chapter of the uh, of the Yale report. Yeah, they do. Although there's, of course, some exclusions. We've already highlighted a few of those as well. There's, um, there's, there's some exclusions and, and a number of exclusions. And, you know, there may also be more to come. So, you know, we, we've heard, uh, we've heard, a few pronouncements from from the uh, from the minister that there may be more coming. This is the first step, and so on. So um, it'll be interesting to see at the end of the day what gets retained and what doesn't. Yeah, that's true. One thing that was retained was the issue of discoverability, uh, which has yeah. been a topic for for some time and for some is contentious. What you know, what does discoverability mean for those that don't track this closely, and and what does the the government have in mind in terms of what it's done on the in the bill? It's been interesting to follow, um, you know, to provide a bit of historical context, if, if I can find some, um, the CRTC, like some of its counterparts elsewhere, has, has sort of tended to play a very minor role in regulating electronic or interactive program guides, the EPGs and IPGs that are, you know, the, the different uh, TV guides really that you scroll through on your, on, on, on a menu item on your, on your box, typically. Um, 
you know, they've, they've, for instance, had rules in place around giving notice before the, the TV distributor realigns the channels, fairness rules around whose services are promoted on that channel, especially for vertically integrated companies that may have an incentive to sort of advertise the, the television services they own ahead of those of other folks. Um, the other piece of this is, you may also remember years ago, Netflix offering, I think it was a million dollar prize to anyone who could improve their their content recommendation algorithm. So put that all together in the mix and you end up with a topic, how do we find and how do we uh, assure the prominence of different types of content? You know, do you get lost in the mix or not? Are you the one who is at the bottom of the shelf that no one ever sees? Um, it was a big topic of conversation during the, uh, we talked earlier about the Jean-Pierre Blais years at the CRTC and uh, his commission convened a number of conferences and roundtables on the topic. We've seen it discussed a lot, I think, within the creative community and the, the, the audiovisual industry. Canada Media Fund has been quite active here. So the discussion around discoverability and how different users get nudged towards different content has been, been around for a while. In a lot of ways, it's sort of a, a almost like a localized or sector-specific version of the discussion around algorithmic accountability and, and transparency. I don't think anyone really knows what, if anything, will happen with this topic. Um, there's a similar provision in the European Audiovisual Media Services, the AVMS directive over there around, I think the, the way they put it is ensuring that media service providers take measures relating to the prominence of European works in the catalog of programs they offer. So again, you have language over there and perhaps one of the advantages we have will be being able to wait and watch and see how that, that plays out. That AVMS directive was supposed to have been transposed into national law by, by EU members fairly recently. Uh, most of them, I believe, are late. I don't know that it's been actually transposed in, in, in that many countries yet. But you know, en any energy around this here, I think, may come from seeing what, if anything, is done elsewhere. So it's really hard to tell, but um, <laughs> that's, that's where I think we sit so far. Okay, one of those issues that's kind of stay tuned. So we've mentioned Jean-Pierre Blais a couple of times uh, when he was chair of the CRTC, and, and those that follow these issues will recall a, a very contentious interaction uh, between him and Netflix several years ago over access to what Netflix considered confidential information and what he considered essential information to come to an appropriate regulatory approach. Uh, how does the government address the issue of access to that kind of information? In a few ways, uh, some of which are, are inspired by the approach taken the Telecommunications Act, which uh, is is a little bit um, more aggressive on this, I suppose. And it's for those who, who don't know the episode, it's um, <laughs> it's worth uh, uh, looking up. You know, when I've taught communication policy in, in the past, or even in, in working with different clients, I'll I'll say, look, you really need to first of all just see what a CRTC hearing is about. So of course we'll go and uh, uh, search up. Uh, CRTC hearing videos, and this is always the one that comes up first. So it's it's a CRTC greatest hit, I think. Um, but you know, part of that was really around the CRTC's Broadcasting Act powers around compelling information either from licensees or compelling information in the course of a proceeding, um, which intersected in, in different ways uh, with Netflix, who was not a licensee and uh, which was at a proceeding, but whose participation, I suppose, became the topic of, of that conversation. So um, in this bill, there, there's a few different uh, pieces to addressing compelling information, I suppose, um, from, from different parties. First of all, and this is at 9.1, section 9.1 sub 1 paragraphs I and J for those playing along at home, um, 
uh, around compelling comp corporate information from those carrying on a broadcasting undertaking, whether or not they're licensee. Um, and then around compelling information that the CRTC considers necessary for administering the act. And the language there is quite broad. It mirrors, I believe, some of the language we've seen in the Telecommunications Act. Um, and it really uh, enables the CRTC to ask for a broad range of, of information. So that's that's the the uh, that's the ask in a way, or that's what allows the CRTC to ask for the information. But then, second of all, there are new administrative monetary penalty provisions around those who violate an order of the CRTC. Um, you know, the 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 ceiling on that is quite high. It can be up to $10 million for a first uh, violation. It can be up to $15 million for subsequent violations. Now, there's a fair bit of procedure around it. There are certainly uh, uh, a list of mitigating circumstances in which you ought not attract <laughs> the maximum penalty. Um, but one can imagine that, you know, in that kind of a a standoff, the CRTC might get into a situation where they say, look, um, we will keep this information confidential or not, but we require it and uh, and and therefore going that route. So it's it's a it's a much more aggressive uh, approach that was there in the past. And it really um, you know, does fall to the CRTC to use it in a way that's responsible. And look, we we have seen that provision out of the Telecommunications Act for for quite a while uh, now, and and it's been um, well. The CRTC certainly does compel a lot of information if you're a telco, um, but on the other hand, you know, it, it, we haven't seen a huge amount of controversy uh, around. Um, well, you know, I say that, but on the other hand, in terms of, of certain types of proceedings and the question of disclosure of, of information, um, it has been controversial. So uh, it remains to be seen, I suppose. Um, the other piece to all of that is, <laughs> which will no doubt uh, be an interesting debate down the line, um, is the role of the Commissioner of Competition. In other words, the Competition Bureau and Statistics Canada, and uh, the, the bill sets out provisions under which um, the information can be shared in a limited way with with each of them. Again, similar to what's in the Telecommunications Act. Okay. Now you mentioned the enforcement of of information disclosure. The Act also, or this bill also, addresses enforcement more broadly. Some people ask, well, how is the CRTC going to enforce any of this? And I know that it speaks of uh, new penalties, AMPs in particular. Um, what 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 is the CRTC being given to enforce the, some of its rulings when it comes to these issues? Yeah, so, so, so as I mentioned, it's really um, a new power that didn't exist before uh, under the Broadcasting Act, which did exist, and you know, it was brought in a, a few years ago under the Telecommunications Act. Um, so this, in a sense, is mirroring that. Um, and it's the ability of the CRTC to, um, well, to say, look, if you, if you contravene a regulation or order, if you, um, you know, undertake certain actions which are uh, directly against the Broadcasting Act and, you know, all of the, the proper safeguards are taken and, and you simply uh, carry on, um, then we have the power to fine you as a deterrent. And so and th these are the teeth that you'll typically hear uh, uh, administrative agencies asking for. So, you know, when we, when we talk about, for instance, the Office of the Privacy Commissioner, um, you know, saying uh, rightly, uh, I think a lot of people would, would suggest that, that it needs more teeth. This is the kind of thing that we talk about. So um, the penalties that the CRTC can levy, again, for a corporation, or well, for, for anyone other than an individual, um, I should say, are up to $10 million for a first violation, up to $15 million for a second violation. Even in the case of an individual, there can be amps, 
or administrative monetary penalties, $25,000, $50,000 after the first violation are the ceilings. Um, and then there's, as I say, a, a list of, of criteria, uh, purpose, um, and, and other uh, uh, sort of procedural road mapping of, of how that's to work. So for instance, you know, in terms of when and how much the amps are actually to be to be levied, the act tells us that it depends on the nature and scope of the violation, the history of compliance of the person who committed the violation, their history with respect to previous uh, agreements um, or undertakings, uh, essentially an agreement with the CRTC in order to avoid uh, any further violations or penalties, um, and so on and so forth. So ability to pay factors established by regulation. So, you know, we can see that if you're the CRTC, this is not what you want to be doing all day. And, and I think the, the approach that they would typically take would be to say, look, um, we, have the now, we, we now have the ability to enforce. And so uh, we, uh, we expect to be taken seriously. One other thing I should act, add on this is, you know, another another feature of the broadcast or this bill in terms of revise, in terms of amending the Broadcasting Act, is that it, it starts to move away from a licensing approach. So typically, the other tool in the CRTC's arsenal would be to say, look, you're a you're a radio station, you're a, a specialty television service, whatever. Um, we're going to, because of your history of, of, of violations or whatever it is, we're not going to give you a full seven or five year renewal, depending. We'll, we'll make it a three year or a one year, you know, depending on how bad things have gotten. And, you know, it's a very slow and graduated process. On the, on the other hand, if you're a, a, a broadcasting undertaking, if you're a TV or a radio station or whomever, I mean, it's expensive just to go to the CRTC and do all that and have to go and, and have your license in peril. And so that's something that they've done in the past, in a sense, which will no longer be available to them in a lot of circumstances. And so, you know, the other piece to the AMPS story here, I think, is, is it gives them or restores some teeth that perhaps they'll no longer have uh, when they're no longer licensing folks. That's interesting. And it is a, a dramatic shift or an important shift, certainly for the, the more conventional side of, of how it deals with broadcast. Mm -hmm. It sounds like the CRTC has got a lot to sort out. We already <laughs> highlighted a number of these things. We know that the government has talked about a policy direction that could be forthcoming. So they've got the bill, but with so many of these other issues still a little bit up in the air, uh, they've sent strong signals that that, that there, there is likely to be a policy direction. What what might that look like? I know that we saw we saw one fairly recently on the telecom side. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's 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 really hard to anticipate, <laughs> but um, certainly one thing that we saw as part of the Yale report was a draft order issuing directions to the CRTC. Uh, they called it respecting equitable contributions in respect of Canadian broadcasting service revenues. And this really goes back to that whole question of funding independent, uh, uh, well, particularly, I suppose, independent Canadian production, um, which tends to depend on, on funds like the Canada Media Fund and, and others, um, or at least look to those as, as, as key sources of, of, of financing. And so um, the goal of this draft order that the uh, Yale report certainly put out as being one which they believed to be urgent is really one which would say, hey, over the top services, streaming services uh, in Canada, um, you must similarly contribute, you know, along the same lines, and I suppose probably at the same levels that the regulated um, non-internet delivered uh, video services uh, do. And so, you know, if you look to that order, they talk about 
uh, requiring that um, what this bill calls online undertakings would make a significant financial contribution to the production of Canadian programming derived from a percentage of their Canadian programming revenue. And if the CRTC so determines, support the discoverability of the Canadian programming they provide and so on. Now, I have a hard time imagining that there would be a lot done on discoverability in the short term, um, but it's le certainly mu much less hard to imagine some sort of uh, uh, order which would relate to this so-called significant financial contribution, which would I, you know, just thinking about these these different recommendations, come in the form of some requirement to spend a, a proportion of their, as it says, a proportion of their Canadian programming revenue on purchasing Canadian programming, and so again, it's it's hard to know exactly, but um, that's a that's a, a reasonable guide I think that we have. Yeah. Um, thanks for that. Uh, you know, why don't we wrap up with this with this last question? Uh, you, you've done a really nice job of laying out a lot of what's in the bill and essentially some of the next steps that will fall to the CRTC. The minister has has put out what strikes me as an incredibly ambitious timeline for all of this. He suggested that we could see all of this passed through the House and the Senate sent along to the CRTC and then all, every, all everything the CRTC needs to do all so quickly that almost literally a year from now, we would see the rules in place and companies say like Netflix um, being asked to, to pay whatever the CRTC decides they need to pay and do whatever else CRTC decides they need to do. You know, you've highlighted a lot of history in terms of how they've dealt with some of these issues from your experience, how long, do you typically think these kinds of issues take to play out? I mean, legislation, of course, can uh, can be very quick or can it take a fair amount of time, but I'm especially interested on the regulatory side in terms of the CRTC's ability to move quickly on this. I suspect that, you know, the more directive that an order like that was the more quickly that it would, it would, uh, it would be implemented. But, you know, the reason the Yale uh, committee or the Yale report, I should say, um, suggested a draft order under the existing Broadcasting Act was they felt that was the the, the, the most efficient route, I suppose, to to acting quickly and 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 moving quickly. And so, you know, the idea that we would finalize and pass the bill and 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 as we've heard, see some sort of order. Uh, to the CRTC, which would then act on it. If the order is extremely directive and, you know, depending on <laughs> what happens with the different potential legislative um, and court and, and, and different uh, actions that, that other players may take, you know, it could happen relatively quickly pending uh, whatever approach courts have seized with the question decide to take. But, um, you know, typically this is a major change it wouldn't be surprising to see it take a little bit longer than than that timeline, especially for something more than a, a quick kind of please do this directive order uh, to, to come through. And and to be honest, you know, one one has to think that anything that we do that that's going to last for a while ought to be uh, ought to be done with care. And so, you know, I, I know that there's a lot happening during COVID. I know that there's a lot of different other files, some of which touch the CRTC directly, which are important, including, for instance, broadband connectivity. And, and you know, while I have no doubt there's a lot of energy behind this um, and it will and, and, it, and it will absolutely um, uh, be seen as urgent in, in many quarters, it, you know, 
a, a change of this of this type, you have to think uh, you'd want to go carefully. So maybe there will be a, a fairly directive order to the CRTC, and we'll have to see how that plays out, as I say, in the event that, that parties oppose it in court and so on, um, or at least ask courts to, to try and take a look at it. But, um, you know... <laughs> It's, it's hard to imagine a major wholesale change beyond that uh, in short order like that. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I mean, you, we haven't met, you've mentioned it, but we, we haven't got into it. The, the prospect that the courts at some stage get involved in this as, as well. And there's, or, or at least are asked to, yeah. Yep. yeah. No, there's that. There's trade related issues too, potentially, especially if they do take an approach that singles out or targets specific entities, um, because the USMCA may have something to say about that too. So, Bram, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Happy to. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The LawBites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Mm